And I think the first thing I would tell your listeners is if you're going to enter into a partnership, regardless of the experience that you have or your partner has, regardless of who's bringing the capital, there has to be a mutual trust and a mutual respect for each other and each other's concerns. You know, if I bring up something that may be insignificant in the grand scheme of things, don't diminish my, my concerns. You should be able to explain why my concerns won't be an issue, but don't diminish my concerns. And I think the moment that starts to happen, you should pause and really step back, if not step away completely, because that's not a, just a red flag. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Everybody and welcome to Myers Methods presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host Jerome, and I've got my main man from Ohio, John Casman, with me today. John, how are you? Jerome, I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me on. Man, I was just grateful when you agreed to come on the show. You've been moving and shaking, man. You you went from a duplex to like 90 million in assets under management, and you know to get you on the show is a real treat. But you know, before we dive into the episode, do me a favor and let me know how the listeners can get in contact with you if they want to follow up after hearing your message. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, the best thing to do is go to our website, casmancapital.com. You know, right now we do have a sample deal available that you can download. I'll get into that a little bit more later on, but check out our website from there. That's pretty much the offspring to, you know, our, our podcast. If you want to check out our podcast, uh, if you want to check out events that we have coming up, and then also to get in touch with me on social media. So go to the website, casmancapital.com to check out, check out more information and connect with me there. Awesome. And you guys got an event coming up in July, right? That's right. July, uh, July 25th and 26th. We have the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. We have uh, an amazing lineup of speakers from multifamily investors, syndication experts, all the way down to, you know, some, some, some fantastic flippers and wholesalers. And this is, uh, it started off kind of as a regional event, but this is really national in scale now. We've got, um, you know, everyone from Brian Burke to, to uh, Dan, uh, David Green from Bigger Pockets coming out and just a huge lineup. You know, you can check out the website and, and get more information there. That website is MidwestRESummit.com. But, you know, the thing about us and what we like to do with all of our information, this is a no pitch event. So it's really all about education and networking. It's about connecting with people who can help you elevate your game and elevate your business. So no one's going to be in the back room trying to upsell you on a $30,000 or $40,000 coaching program, anything like that. It's really about connecting with people that can help you get to the next level. Awesome. 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 I'm glad you're coming down to the Mid-Atlantic Multifamily Investing Conference to hang out with me and all my multifamily investing friends. So Absolutely. Absolutely. They're real close together, too. So we'll kind of do it back to back a little bit. But I love it, man. It'll be a great time in the summer and hang out. And, you know, it was supposed to be earlier. Obviously, COVID-19 kind of changed both of our plans with these events. But I'm excited to come down, maybe get some Carolina tea. I know y'all do a little Carolina sweet tea down there as well. So it'll be a good time for everybody. Awesome. So, you know, I've pulled out some of the highlights from your career, but do me a favor and talk a little bit about your background and what you're currently focused on. Yeah, I mean, real, real quick, you know, my background is in corporate America. You know, I started off and I did what every, everyone's told to do to make it in America. You know, I come from 
very humble beginnings, uh, blue collar family. My dad worked at a factory. My mom, you know, worked in uh, administrative roles. They split when I was a little kid. And, um, you know, money was always tight growing up. So for me, when I looked around at other people and kind of saw my, my vision of success, I guess, it always was, you know, people on TV or in movies. I remember the Boomerang movie with Eddie Murphy, you know, working in an advertising executive. And uh, something about that always clicked to me. Just, I mean, he had the girls, he was stylish, he was fashionable, he was in control. And uh, actually, you know, ventured into a career in advertising and marketing. So I did that for a while. And ultimately what ended up happening is, um, I got to a point where I was at General Motors and working in corporate America, you can imagine what this moment was like. But 2008, um, the economy's just completely falling apart. I'm watching my bosses on CNN talk about the economy and whether or not we're going to make it as a company. And I go into work on a day when I know they're going to let people go. Um, I was told that I was safe, but again, things change all the time. So I don't know if I have a job. I go into the office. I know it's going to be a very somber mode all day long. And I look at my phone and there's a red light blinking on it. And the guy in front of me had been let go. I knew the woman to my left had been let go. And I was paranoid about listening to the voicemail that had been left for me. I ended up picking up the phone. And as I let my heart slow down a little bit, I pushed the button, listened to the voicemail. It's from the guy who sits in front of me. And he's talking about how he got let go from the company after 22 years. And, you know, he had... Um, he was diabetic and he was on insulin. He doesn't know he's going to pay for it, all these other things. And it broke my heart and I felt very empathetic towards him. But the second thing that happened for me was I realized that I couldn't really rely on a company, no matter how big the company was, I couldn't rely on corporate America to take care of me financially uh, through my future. So at that moment, I kind of made a decision to start figuring out ways to build a real estate portfolio. Fast forward a couple of years, I did buy that first duplex after I moved to Chicago, I bought a three unit building uh, the following year, and then ultimately started to scale up into an eight unit building before ultimately starting to work with other investors. Awesome. Awesome. And so you've had to work with people along the way. I guess you and your wife did the duplex thing and the three unit and maybe even the eight, but then you started taking down really big deals. And so have you had any experiences where things didn't go well with the people that you were working with? Nah, man. Flawless execution every time, all the time. <laughs> so, like every other podcast, it's a wrap, guys. We can wrap here. A fortune, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the, the biggest things for us, and this was always the watch out, was the more we expanded, the more we had to work with other people, the more we had to trust other people. And we knew that there were a lot of great things that come with that, but a lot of challenges that could come with that too. As you mentioned, the two unit, the three unit, the eight unit, those were our properties. You know, that was our personal portfolio. We didn't have any investors. We self-managed of two and a three unit. We hired a third party management for the eight unit building just so we could really learn how to work with third party management and understand where are the gaps, like how do they communicate? Because we knew we wanted to scale. I knew this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So the eight unit was kind of my dry run on, you know, working with part, third party management so I could figure out how it goes. And then ultimately as we scaled, I knew that I would need to bring on investors and, and partners. Um, one of the things that I did leading up to that was we took on a couple of flip projects to kind of generate some more capital and they did not go well at all. Just flat out did not go well. Part of it was I had no experience flipping and I really delegated my, uh, my voice to the 
partner who was a developer and he had a lot of experience flipping. And even though we would sit down and while I didn't have any experience, I still, you know, I'm pretty savvy. I read a lot and, you know, I knew that there was a 70% rule and, you know, you're not supposed to uh, go more than 70% of your, your ARV, you know, your after repair value. So I knew, I knew that stuff, right. But I knew it from a book standpoint or podcast standpoint, I had never done it. So I've talked to a guy who's actually done it and he's like, no, 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 this is a good deal. And I'm like, all right, well, the book says, you know, on page 72 here that you're not supposed to do it if it's over 70. And he's like, no, no, no. So we ended up moving forward with them. And, and the short story there is um, a lot of the concerns that I had um, ended up coming to fruition where, you know, we were trying to, our ARV was going to be the top of the market, which should have been a huge red flag at the time, but it just wasn't. Um, the renovation was a huge full gut rehab, second story addition. I mean, this was a six month project on an accelerated time frame, but we're in Chicago, Cook County. And, you know, it was not six months. It took a whole year, if not a little bit more than a year. Um, so none, none, nonetheless, you know, that project didn't go as well. Um, the, the partner ended up becoming, a well, he ended up, uh, falling victim to some, some substances, I should say. And I ended up taking over as the effective, uh, general, you know, uh, GC general contractor on the deal to get it done. So lots of, uh, pain lessons there. But I would say the biggest lesson for us was really just an understanding our voice and listening to our gut. You know, when you get a gut feeling about something or someone or deal, you know, you need to trust it. And for us, we had some trepidations up front. We ignored that because, well, this guy was an expert, right? He had the credentials, he had the properties that I could go physically look at and have the track record. But he didn't really respect our opinion. And I think the first thing I would tell your listeners is, if you're going to enter into a partnership, regardless of the experience that you have or your partner has, regardless of who's bringing the capital, there has to be a mutual trust and a mutual respect for each other and each other's concerns. You know, if I bring up something that may be insignificant in the grand scheme of things, don't diminish my, my concerns. You should be able to explain why my concerns won't be an issue but don't diminish my concerns. And I think the moment that starts to happen, you should pause and really step back, if not step away completely, because that's not just a red flag. That just continues to expand and become a bigger issue. So a lot of it when you're dealing with partnerships, whether it be a contractor or a partner, it really is about relationships. And I would say that was really the biggest mistake we made was entering to an agreement or a partnership with someone who didn't really have the mutual respect for us, because a lot of these issues we actually could have worked out a lot of them could have been resolved before they became big issues and ended up, you know, costing us in the long run of that project. I remember my first deal, I wasn't ready to close because I didn't feel like we had all the things in order before we closed. We didn't have asset management contracts signed. We didn't have property management contracts signed. We didn't have a GC contract signed. And there was a faction of the JV team was like, well, I mean, we'll just put the money in and take his equity share and move on without him. And I was like, oh, boy, we're just going to rush through this, huh? And so eventually we didn't close. We slowed it down and we were able to get the things in place that we need to get in place in order to be in the right footing. But, you know, the cadence of, you know, I give and feeling hurt is like so important. And again, like people, I, people really don't get this. It's like getting married, guys. Like when you go into these deals, it 
you're entering into a relationship with somebody who doesn't care or value what you have to say? Like, how long is that really going to last and go well? It's just not. And so how do you move on to the next phase? And so, John, was there any financial impact in doing that deal that way? Yeah, there was a huge financial impact. I mean, ultimately, we lost money. Um, the only person who made money on that deal was my lender. And he will tell you that he didn't even make that much money. Um, but, you know, it was definitely a, a tough loss. And it, for me, it was less about the money and more about just the, the drain. You know, at that time, we had started really trying to scale our multifamily business. And it became very difficult because, you know, I would take one step forward on the multifamily business and I'd have to take two steps back due to this flip project where I would literally have to take off work to go to the property, spend all day at the property to oversee the crew, to make sure things were happening, to make sure things were getting delivered and guys were working and doing what they said they were going to do. You know, I had to pick up, you know, paints myself and paint or pick up materials myself. And I ended up staying there um, overnight a couple of times to paint the property and do different things, just to try to keep the project moving and do whatever I could do myself. So, you know, the, the, the drain, I think emotionally, was way worse than the drain financially. Uh, but yeah, there was, a, you know, some losses there. And I would say, you know, you, you know, it depends on your mindset, right? This was definitely a, a huge learning experience for me, where it just taught me to value kind of my own word. Um, and not just, again, delegate to someone else, simply because they have more experience doing something. The reality is, and, and this is something I think your listeners should, should take away, you may lack experience in something specific, let's just say multifamily. So you may not have as much multifamily investing as the next guy, but maybe you have experience in running teams or project management or you know, business development or raising capital, whatever the case may be. And you should never relinquish that. You know, Whatever experience and knowledge you bring to the table, use that as kind of your confidence builder to transition into the other aspects of investing or managing a deal because it's important to make sure that you bring that. Because some folks, just because someone's a good contractor, they may not have a good sense on the business side of things and how to pivot when decisions are made or what to do when challenges get hard. I mean, some people are only good if things go exactly according to schedule. And that was the case with that individual. He had his plan, but the moment that plan got, you know, got thrown for a loop, he was done. He was like, it was like an assembly line. And there was a wrench where it wasn't supposed to be on the assembly line and the whole thing just shut down. And it was like, why don't you just pick up the wrench? And he, he just couldn't even bring it up. So just never devalue yourself is the really big takeaway there and have some confidence in yourself, have the, the ability to put in the work, to surround yourself with the right mentors. And that was the other thing for me was I had a lot of people who kind of gave us the blueprint of what to do and how to do it. And we ignored that to an extent to go with the guy who just had experience. And if you really think back and go back to that time, you know, those individuals are right. If we would have did the deal the way we we're supposed to be doing the deal, you have enough traps and levers where even if the deal didn't work the way it was supposed to work, I still would have been okay. Uh, just to, to counterbalance that, I did three rehab projects at the same time. It was just really not a wise decision. <laughs> but the third one was supposed to be our house that we we're going to move into. Now, because that first project swallowed up so much of my time and my energy, it really caused an impact on every other project that we had. So I had to delay the third project that we were, was going to be our home, our dream home. I had to delay that because I had to keep funneling money into this first project. Well, even through all of that, that project went a year 
longer than it was supposed to, the third project. It went a year longer than it was supposed to. I still didn't lose money on that because we bought right, we financed the thing right, and we managed it as good as we could, even with all of these issues. So, What's up, guys? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now, let's get back to the episode. So the reason I'm saying that is, if you have a sound business plan, even when you have these different issues that come up, you can still do well if you've bought soundly because ideally you're buying in the right location, you're buying a property that has some good upside potential, and you're buying something that is going to see demand increase and you have a business plan that you can force appreciation. So if you're doing those kind of things, even when the market goes crazy or contractors rip you off or whatever else bad that could happen happens, you still have some protectionist insulation because you bought the right way. Awesome. And so, you know, the only other question I would have on that, did you think it was prudent to have a mentor or somebody else engaged while you were still early in the process? Or did you think by partnering with somebody with more experience, that was the best approach? Um, it's tough to say. My goal was not to be a flipper. So I would say the best thing for me was would have been not to do any flips, period. Um, it wasn't my goal. I didn't want to do it. And um, it was the reason I partnered. I partnered because I wanted someone else who wanted to do it. I just wanted to take the money I had and find a way to double that as quickly as I could. And that was, you know, I think for me, that was really the wrong approach. And what would have been a better approach was take that money and figure out how to do it within multifamily. Because I was extremely passionate about multifamily. I loved multifamily investing. I'd done that. I already built up my own portfolio there. And doing more multifamily and partnering with someone else would have allowed me to scale. And that's what I want to do anyway. So if I would have just done that, that would have been a better thing. Because I did hire a mentor for that. But my mentor was not a flipper, right? So I had a mentor to help with the multifamily stuff, but I didn't have a mentor anybody in the single family rehab space. So for me, I think just going back, it would be to focus on what you actually want to do and then figure out the best path to get there. Um, for me, I knew multifamily was it. I knew I needed to start working with investors, but somehow that led me into doing a flip project. And I, I think that was the mistake I would have made. I should have just stayed more on the straight path to multifamily investing and building a multifamily portfolio versus, okay, well, I've got, you know, I think it was like 50K or whatever it was. How do I flip this 50K and make that 100K so I have more money to invest in real estate or multifamily? It should have been, I got 50K. Who can I partner with or how can I, you know, do a multifamily deal with the 50K that I have versus how do I take this 50K and make it 100K? So I think just being more focused and streamlined on the goals I really want. Because even if I would have had great success on that flip, my goal would have been to take that money and just put it back in multifamily. It wouldn't have been to build this flipping business. I want to do a one and done, you know, and I could have been sidetracked in that to say, now I'm a flipper. Right. And so I, bottom line is I, I shouldn't have flips, you know, and that, that's the way we look at deals and decisions now is what are you trying to accomplish? What is the best path to get there? And are you willing to commit to this path? And by commit, I mean, commit, I mean, time, money, resources, patience, Everything that it takes to be successful, are you willing to stay the path and stay the course until you are successful? 
or is this something where if it doesn't work for you in six months, you're going to quit and try to move on to the next thing. So that's kind of the lens we use to, to look at our decisions. Um, and it's helped us stay focused and make more deci- better decisions going forward. So now that you've transitioned into multifamily exclusively, have you found anything or had any missteps there in that space too? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges you're always going to face in multifamily investing is just the team you build around you. You're always going to have to evaluate people. Somebody who was great when you, you know, acquired a property may not be great a year into owning and managing the property. So we've gone through some different people and we've had to make those tough decisions and and personnel. And this is across the board, you know, it's really running a business. And just like any other business, you're going to have to constantly evaluate your team, your vendors, your employees, and making sure you're putting the best product out there that you can. So we've had that, you know, we've had contractors who have taken money from us. We've had to look at our processes and say, okay, how do we, how do we, change that to ensure we're not paying contractors until the work is done properly, until we have the appropriate sign off so we don't get liens, you know, put against our property. So we've had those kind of things that we've had to learn. We've had challenges where, you know, um, we didn't have the proper reserves or we had the reserves but they were with the bank and not in our pocket. So the bank's sitting there holding our reserves. So if we actually need to touch it, we got to go beg the bank to let us touch our own money, which is ridiculous. So just learning things like that kind of the hard way on some of the earlier deals where you understand the capital stack and why it is important to be very conservative and understanding what being conservative means. And I think this COVID-19 situation, it has taught people how important it is to have reserves and funds on deck, even if you don't need them right away, because you just don't know what may happen. You want to make sure that you're in a position of comfort and power and flexibility. And that allows you to do that. So the biggest thing for us was, you know, really learning how to properly fund deals, make sure we have plenty of reserves to navigate any situation that may come our way. And then constantly evaluating our team. You know, some folks are great. Some folks do a great presentation um, or they're great interview people. But the moment you get to, you know, the actual work or, you know, you, you see how they consistently operate on a day-to-day basis, you need to make changes. So we kind of steadily monitor those things and evaluate our team and making sure we're, we're doing what's best for everybody moving forward. Is there one little snippet you can give us on selecting a great team member? Is there one for every, every person that you partner with? Yeah, I mean, so so one thing we try to do is um, really understand who they are. So it's less about um, compensation, first and foremost, and really focus on capabilities, but then character. Those are really the two big things that I would start with character, first and foremost. Is this somebody that we can trust, period? Um, is this somebody who we can trust? And is this somebody who has a skill set to do what we need them to do? I think those are really the, the two biggest things. Um, too often we look at our budget and people use their budget to determine who they hire. All right, I got $10,000 for this. So who can do it for $10,000, right? Um, or this guy comes in at a $15,000 bid, but you know, you only got 10 K. So you can go with this guy who's over here who said he can do it for 10 K. And that's really one of the mistakes that I think a lot of people make. Um, part of it is, is that if you don't understand why one guy's at 15 K and the other guy's at 10 K, then you may still end up paying 15 K either way. Right. Um, or you pay one guy 10 K, but it takes him twice as long. So the money you would have made, you lost anyway. So your budget is insignificant is what it really boils down to. You know, screw the numbers you came up with and however you, you came up with them. The better thing is to talk to the professionals, get some quotes, understand their business plan or how they would approach it 
what the watch outs are and hire the best possible person because it'll be easier to get that best possible person to cut down to 10K or ask them, okay, hey, if we need to save 5K, where would you be able to do it? Okay, well, maybe if you didn't do this or you'd use this or use this material or, you know, I could have one guy work it or whatever. They can do it better, but hire the right people and the right team members and then worry about the money side of it versus just hiring based off of, you know, budget and capabilities there. I love it. I love it. And I, I guess the last question I'll ask on this episode is what words of wisdom do you have for the listeners? If you could just give them any generic advice, invest in yourself, you know, believe in yourself and invest in yourself and really just identify what are the things that are holding you back. You know, most of the missteps that I've made from my investing have really been missteps because I was trying to avoid making mistakes. Now that may sound crazy, but really think about what I just said. Every mistake I've made, was made because I was trying to not make a mistake. It, you know, when you stop thinking about what is the best thing to do and just doing it and you start overanalyzing and, you know, for me, going back to the flipping, it was because I felt like I needed more money. So I went and partnered with the flipper. I would have been better off just flipping myself and just learning and making whatever mistakes with staying in control or partner with somebody who was more seasoned, but also had a better track record and who had the right character, right? So I would say just really focus on yourself, invest in yourself. If you're going to go down a pathway, make sure you're properly educated. You got the right team around you. You have mentors in place. If you're going with multifamily investing, especially if you're working with investors and partnering with other people and their money, you should really educate yourself and think about bringing on a mentor, you know, a mentor who can help you navigate some of these challenges that we just talked about, but then also learning how to properly raise money. You know, your friends and family, they're not your investor database. You know, those are people, you know, they're not your ideal investor. So how do you go out and attract capital for deals? Those are things that we help people with. And I'm happy to talk to anybody more about that. If they're interested in learning how to attract capital for deals or really figuring out how do you step back and build a successful business? Now, I mean, if they made it to this point of the show, they're a podcast listener and, you know, I love Target Market Insights. So let's talk a little bit about your podcast, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely, man. Listen, Target Market Insights, the multifamily marketing show, um, when we initially launched it, it was all about how to find the best places to invest. And we have since morphed it more from just market research to marketing holistically, because, you know, as we just talked about, you know, I think attracting capital is a key component. You know, many people I know who are interested in working with investors, but maybe a little scared to call their uncle or, you know, people that they know and ask them for money. Um, part of it is, I think the approach is wrong. And we try to talk to people about how to approach it the right way with the right mindset. And the key is really about serving other people. Many people focus on what they get out of it and what they want. But if you focused on just like any business, right? If you create a restaurant and you only make dishes that you love and no one else loves them, then yes, you're going to suffer. But if you focus on serving other people and, you know, what do they like? What are they looking for? And how do I serve them and create a solution that they're looking for? That's when you can really thrive. And, and that mentality kind of permeates itself through um, working with investors as well. And that's something that we try to, you know, make sure we talk a lot about how to tell your story, how to understand the different marketing levers, how to leverage social media, podcasting, blog platforms. It's really all about educating yourself, but then also how do you take the education that you have for yourself and educate those people in your surrounding network, your potential investors or family and friends, um, other folks who may have an interest in partnering with you. So it's really all about those things. We've done um, over a hundred and, I don't know, 90 episodes now, uh, probably close to 200 by the time this comes out. 
and uh, lots of great guests that we've had and phenomenal information. So I definitely implore you to check that out. If you are interested in multifamily investing, whether you're on the active side or the passive side, lots of great information for both investors. So you can check that out anywhere that there are podcasts, Target Market Insights, Multifamily Marketing Show. You started the YouTube channel too. Yes, I did. I did. Started YouTube and uh, I've been slowly pushing out some content there on YouTube and we'll be growing that over the next year or so. But we're excited to see kind of the video platform take off for us. Awesome, John. I really appreciate you taking time to share with the listeners. You know, I, I did the fix and flip thing for a while, too. Then I realized it was a job and got back into multifamily. So I think we both saw the light and made that transition um and so man again just thank you so much looking forward to hanging out with you in july at the different conferences we have going on and um i look forward to hearing the next episode of target market insights um, we'll talk to you soon sounds good man oh it's a pleasure talking to you jerome you take care okay all right man you made it to this juncture so you really love what we shared on this episode of myers methods presents multifamily missteps do us a favor give us a five-star rating Give us a review and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.